So, just curious, um, how many of you have signed up to participate in 40 Days with Jesus? Okay, so quite a few of us. Uh, I had checked the other day, and I think we have about somewhere between 95 and 100 people who have signed up to participate. And so for those of you who are not as familiar with what 40 Days of Jesus is, is about, is what we're doing is we're encouraging one another to be in the Word and in prayer on a daily basis. And so we have put together a little Bible reading uh, and, and prayer journal uh, that people are using. And, then, and what we're going to be doing there is we're going to be reading through the Gospels of Mark and Luke. And then here on Sunday mornings, uh, I'm going to be preaching from the, the uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And what we're wanting to do is just kind of, uh, we want to, to permeate our lives with the person of Jesus, and that's the, the whole intent of this. Uh, one of the things that I've encouraged you to do is to, um, uh, in, in the little booklet, I, I encourage you when you read, to read, it, read through the chapter a couple of times. And the reason I encourage you to do this is that what we want to do is, I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you read, and a couple of minutes later, you have no clue what you read. Anybody ever had that experience? So, so I'm not the only person. Uh, but what, what's really good for me is to go through, read it once silently, and then read it a, a second time, uh, and just read it uh, maybe uh, to read it aloud but softly to myself. But what it does is a couple of things. It kind of reinforces what I'm reading. Uh, and the other thing it does, uh, it, it just helps me to, to pay attention to it. And, and our intent is not simply to read a chapter of Scripture because it, it, it really what we want to do is we, we, we want to come to the Scriptures and we want to understand it uh, with our minds. But, but even more than that, we want it to, uh, to permeate our hearts and our lives. And, um, and so uh, as you're reading the Scriptures, uh, you know, we, we put together a little journal where we ask you to write out any thoughts you have from the text and anything that God is teaching you and then writing out a prayer. And, and that whole idea of writing out a prayer, for some of you, that may feel like a foreign idea. Why should we write out a prayer? Uh, but one of the things I'd, I'd like to, uh, to encourage you to think about is, I, I, again, I don't know about you, but for me, when I write out my prayers, it really helps me pay attention. Because sometimes when I'm praying, I can find myself distracted and thinking about something entirely different. But when I begin, to, when I begin that discipline of actually writing out, kind of like a little letter to God, it really helps me. And also I'd like to just remind you that the writing prayers is as old as the Scriptures. Did you know that? I mean, if you, all you have to do is go back to the book of Psalms. And, and those are examples of people writing out prayers to God. And so it, it is a practice that many people have used uh, for thousands and thousands of years, and it can be really, really helpful. Uh, you're, you're, some of you may be wondering why am I carrying this Bible. Uh, one of the things I'd also like to encourage you to do is if you don't have a really good study Bible, get one. And uh, in my life, I've had a, a lot of study Bibles. I've had a Thompson Chain reference. I've had a, a Schofield reference Bible. I've had a Ryrie study Bible. I've had a, a John MacArthur study Bible. I've had a Life Application study Bible. I've had all these different study Bibles. There are a couple that I think are really uh, kind of like elite study Bibles. That Not all study Bibles are created equal. Some of them are simply the thoughts and ideas of one or two people. Uh, but when you get an ESV study Bible or you get an NIV study Bible, the notes are actually the notes of the translation team. So the notes that you have, like if you have an ESV study Bible, the notes you have in here are the work of about 100 scholars, okay? Uh, world-class scholars 
who are, uh, who, who are fluent in Greek and Hebrew, the actual translation team. And so when you get something like that, like a really good study Bible, either the ESV or NIV, you're getting some really, really good notes. And the way I use it is like this. It's kind of like, let's say maybe it's Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning this last week. And let's say on Tuesday morning I'm reading in Mark chapter 3, and I read this, I read these words from Jesus where he says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So let's say I read those words, and, or let's say my children read those words. They come and they say, Dad, what's this? You know, what is this blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I mean, you know, could I have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Could I be one of those people who's cursed forever by God? And, and, uh, and, and so what I do is uh, I, I just pull out my, my study Bible, and I read here about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If a person, uh, if a person persistently attributes to Satan what's accomplished by the power of God, that is, if one makes a flagrant, willful, decisive judgment uh, that, that the Spirit's testimony about Jesus is satanic, then such a p- person is, never has forgiveness. And then it, it encourages me to look at the note in Luke chapter 12. And I, I look over at the note in Luke chapter 12, and it says the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that is, the persistent and unrepentant resistance against the work of the Holy Spirit and his message concerning Jesus, this person who, can, who persists in hardening his heart against God, against the work of the Holy Spirit, against the provision of Christ as Savior, is outside the reach of God's provision for forgiveness and salvation. And, and then I read this part. This is really good for me. Christians who worry that they have committed the sin, uh, it says, uh, such a concern is itself evidence that an openness that that person has an openness to the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and so for me, you know, I can remember as a young man reading that and thinking, gee, I've said, you know, I've, I've said, a, you know, a few words. Uh, I'm not going to repeat them here in church. But, I've, I, but I remember as a young man reading that and thinking, man, have I somehow blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? Am I one of those people who's lost forever? And if that's ever been your concern, you're probably, you don't need to worry about it, okay? But my point is not so much that, is that, that, you know, what I would encourage you to do is if you don't have one, get a really, really good study Bible. All right. So just a couple of thoughts there real quick. Right now we're looking at the, the book of Matthew. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter uh, 9. Uh, in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, it's kind of like one unit. It's one unit. And uh, what you see when you open up in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, there are three miracles, three miracles, followed by two words on discipleship, followed by... Three miracles, followed by two words on discipleship, followed by three miracles. You get that? Now, I think that when Matthew was writing this, there was, he was being intentionally symmetrical. Okay? All of this is part of a larger theme. All of it is a part of a larger theme. And in, the, in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. And what happens at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people, uh, the people were amazed at the teaching of Jesus because he taught as one who has authority. Well, what we see in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 is in, in 5 through 7, we see the authority of Jesus in his words, but in chapters 8 and 9, we see the authority of Jesus in his works. So last week we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 8. Today what we're going to do is I'm not going to try to do all of chapter 9 
Uh, but what I am going to do is we're going to look at verses 1 through 17. 1 through 17. And, um, and we're, uh, let me read for us real quickly uh, Matthew chapter 8, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. The Bible says this. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man uh, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow's blaspheming. This guy, Jesus, he's he's blaspheming. He's saying he's forgiving sin, and nobody can forgive sin but God. Uh, This fellow's blaspheming. And the scripture says, verse 4, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, it says they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. If you've got your Bible open, I'd encourage you to, to circle that word authority. It's key to understanding uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9. It's about the authority of Jesus. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Jesus says to him, he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, uh, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Actually, we should read that a little bit differently. We should read it more like this. You know, act like you've just, I don't know, eaten something that's like, you know, like really, really bitter, all right? Uh, and, and, and really, the way these guys are, are asking this question, it's kind of like this. Uh, they're they're kind of saying, why does your teacher, why does your teacher uh, eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, there's just contempt and disgust in their voices. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 14. Then John's disciples, you remember John, John the Baptist? John's disciples came, they asked Jesus, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, he said, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. In my life, I don't know about you, but I've come to Jesus many, many different times. I've come to Jesus in a lot of different ways. There are times I've come to Jesus with uh, uh, maybe it's a concern, maybe it's a fear, maybe it's 
Uh, I remember three years ago when we thought that Joy had cancer. I remember coming to Jesus with, with this fear, this anxiety, uh, after the doctor had said that, that when he looked at the tumor in her neck and looked at the MRI and said, you know, that's lymphoma. I remember coming to Jesus with, with fear. I remember coming to Jesus with, with a lot of anxiety. Uh, there have been times where I've come to Jesus with great joy and excitement. Uh, maybe I saw God provide in a really, really special way. Uh, maybe I saw God meet a special need in our lives or the life of another person. And I came to joy with the spirit of, or came to, to God with the spirit of joy and gratitude and, and, and worship. But what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about a time in your life where you came to Jesus. Okay? So for me, I try to make a point to begin every day coming to Jesus. I try to make a point every day to open my Bible, to read it, and to pray. I try to, to begin every day. I try to get off uh, to a good start every day uh, with, with coming to Jesus. Now, now, getting off to a good start doesn't always mean I'm going to have a good finish. But, but not having a good start doesn't really guarantee I'm going to have a good finish either. And so what I do is I try to come to Jesus. And, and what we see in this text is we see three groups of people coming to Jesus in very, very different ways. We, we see three different groups. We, we see one group, they come to Jesus, and, and they come to Jesus with a paralyzed friend. Okay? We have another group, they come to Jesus for a party after the conversion of Matthew. And then we have a third group, the disciples of John, who come to Jesus with a spirit of, of confusion. They have a question uh, about fasting. What I want you to see in these three different encounters with Jesus, I want you to see three principles that I think are important. Three, three principles here that are important. And the first one is this. The first group, they come to Jesus. They come to him with their paralyzed friend. They come to him for, for Jesus to do a miracle. And what I want you to see is this first principle is simply this, is that human, humanity's greatest need is for a Savior. Okay? Humanity's greatest need is for a Savior. It's not for a healer. It's not for a miracle. It's for a Savior. That is, that is humanity's greatest need. When these men bring their paralyzed friend uh, lying on a mat to Jesus, the Bible says Jesus saw their faith. He said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, these guys had come to Jesus. They'd come to Jesus hoping, expecting Jesus to heal their friend. That's, I think that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with coming to Jesus for healing. Nothing in the world wrong with it. I think that, that maybe we should do it more often. But I think that, that here, these men come to Jesus. They come with a friend. They come with an expectation. They come with a request, a desire to see Jesus heal their friend. But Jesus responds, Jesus responds by saying, Your sin, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. In this text, what we see is that, that Jesus, what Jesus does is, is and when Jesus says this, he says, you know, your sins are forgiven. The religious leaders who are present, it says they, they, they were upset. They, they said, hey, this guy is blaspheming. I mean, nobody can forgive sin but God. And, and Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, would, Jesus, knowing what they were, were thinking, uh, he says this. He says, uh, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says to, man, to the man, get up, uh, uh, take up your mat, 
uh, and, and, and go home. That what Jesus does is he heals the man, uh, not just to alleviate his suffering, but to demonstrate that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. That what he's doing is he's revealing that he has authority. And what we see in this is that humanity's greatest need is for a Savior, not a healer. Now, I want to... I wanna, I wanna, uh, there are a couple things I feel like I need to touch base on here with you that I think are important, particularly in the, in the world today, in today's environment. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the prosperity gospel? Any of you all heard those terms before? Some of you may have heard it called uh, the pros- prosperity theology, the health wealth gospel, the gospel of success, and seed faith. Okay? And, and, and this is something that's become extremely popular in our world today. In fact, uh, a lot of these teachers... They're writing a lot of books. They're selling a lot of books. They're making a whole lot of money. Uh, you know, I was reading about one guy who makes $100 million a year. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. All right? And, uh, and, and just a, a few things that I, I want to say to you about the prosperity gospel is this, okay? First of all, if you're, if you're not familiar with what the terms are, let me try to, to just kind of uh, help you grasp a little bit of what the prosperity gospel is about. The prosperity gospel is a religious belief that teaches material blessing and physical health are always, always the will of God for all Christians and the right of every Christian. You get that? That they believe that, that, that uh, physical health and uh, wealth, that that is the right of every Christian. Secondly, the prosperity gospel is a religious belief that teaches that faith, Positive affirmations and donations to certain religious ministries will increase a person's material worth. You ever see this? Okay. Uh, the prosperity gospel is a religious belief that teaches the Bible is a contract between God and man, and that if people have faith in God, he will heal all their diseases, grant people personal security and happiness, and make them wealthy. Okay. Now, what, what, I mean, that, this is the, a way of thinking of a, of a group of people who call themselves Christians, Okay. Uh, the prosperity gospel is a religious belief that teaches that sickness, poverty, uh, are curses to be broken through donations of money, visualization, and positive affirmations. All right? So uh, one of these guys wrote a book, and I don't really read their books. I don't really listen to their messages. But a while back, I chose to read this one person's book just because he's written a bunch of them. And I wanted to kind of know a little bit better for myself a little bit about what they think, what they believe. And in one part of the book, he wrote this. He said, uh, he, he talks about our right to, uh, to, to health, okay? That, that it's kind of like it's a right. It's an obligation of God to heal you. And he says this. He says, maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but don't succumb to it. Are you listening? He's saying, don't succumb to it. You know, maybe it runs in your family, but don't succumb to it, as if you can choose whether you're going to succumb to it or not. Maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family, but don't succumb to it. Instead, say every day, my mind is alert. I have clarity of thought. I have a good memory. Every cell in my body is increasing and getting healthier. Um, If you'll rise up in your authority... If you rise up in your authority, no, there's no mention of Jesus here, no mention of God. If you rise up in your authority, you can be the one to put a stop to the negative things in your family line. 
Okay? Are, are you following all this? Now, I, I'm intentionally not calling this person by name, uh, but he has perfect teeth, a wonderful smile, and great hair. And, and maybe if I had great teeth like his and great hair like his, we would have a church of 52,000 people. Um, it, the, the, you know, the thing is, when I read the book, not everything in the man's book's wrong, okay? Not everything that he says in the book is wrong. I mean, I, I read it cover to cover because I wanted to see for myself. Not everything in the book is, is wrong. I believe some of what he says can actually even be helpful. I think he had some ideas in there that were, I think, could actually be helpful. In the end, he actually does present the gospel which is something I appreciate. There are a lot of people who are not Christians who might pick up that book, uh, who might be into self-help books, who might read that and might actually see the gospel in the end of the book and might actually become Christians. So it's not like I think that everything about this person is bad or everything about this book is wrong. However, however, and this is my concern, there's a lot more focus on material prosperity, physical healing, and becoming a better version of yourself. By the way, the aim of Jesus is not to make you a better version of yourself. The aim of Jesus is to make you more like himself. Okay? Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so what, what the, the focus, I, just, I, I feel like um, ultimately that Jesus, um, I, I kind of felt like it was almost like an afterthought at the end of the book. That's kind of the way I felt as I was reading the book. Now, in, in saying this, I'm not saying the guy is going to hell. I'm not saying he's a, 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 a false teacher, although I do think some of his teaching is what I would call aberrant teaching. Okay? Not consistent with what we see and what we read as we read through the entirety of scriptures. But we didn't come today to talk about the prosperity gospel. We came to talk about Jesus. We came to talk about Jesus. And in the gospel, Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus heals not just to alleviate suffering, but he he heals for another purpose uh, beyond that. That, that. that his purpose in healing, especially in this case, is to demonstrate his authority as the messianic king to forgive sin. Um, he isn't promising that if you have enough faith, he'll heal all your diseases, make you rich. Uh, in, in fact, in, in chapter 8, he says, you know, one guy said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And what did Jesus say to the man? He, he said, foxes have holes. Uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus doesn't give us a promise that we're, we're going to have great wealth if we follow him. In fact, many of, of, of the earliest Christians were uh, extremely, extremely poor. And many faithful followers of Jesus around the world are still poor. And we shouldn't equate following Jesus with things like material wealth or physical, being physically healthy. I mean, people who are faithful followers of Jesus sometimes get sick and sometimes die. And it's not from a lack of faith. All right? Um, so hum- humanity's greatest need is for a Savior, not a healer. Number two, Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. That after the conversion of Matthew, you know how we read about that? Matthew was a tax collector. Uh, Jesus comes to him. He says, follow me. And the Bible says he, he lives, leaves everything and begins to follow Jesus. Uh, but after the conversion of Matthew, Matthew throws a big party for all his tax collecting and sinner friends. Uh, the religious people were offended that Jesus was associating with tax collectors and sinners. And what Jesus says to these people, he says this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's not the healthy, but the sick. Then he says this. Go learn what this means. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The mission of Jesus was and is to call sinners to follow himself. I really believe that as a church, that one of the things that we want to do is we really want to be, uh, we want to be relationally warm. And what we mean by relationally warm, I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, being friendly. But I'm talking about creating safe places for people. Safe places where people can be their real selves. Safe places where people who are, are struggling or hurting can be honest and say, you know what, I'm really struggling today. Or I'm really hurting. Or, you know, I'm struggling with disappointment. I'm, I'm struggling with disappointment with God. And, and, and what we need to do is we need to be, and what we want for ourselves is we want to be a place that where people like Matthew. Uh, we, want to be, we, we want our church to be like Matthew's party, a place where, where, where those who are, might be marginalized by our culture and our society uh, are, um, uh, it's a safe place where they can connect and grow. I, I feel like sometimes that we as Christians... We sometimes, um, if we're not careful, we can despise other people for their sins and their struggles because their sins and their struggles aren't necessarily our sins and our struggles. So let me just, one example is, is, let's say, homosexuality. What the Bible teaches us is it says, the Bible says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. That God intended... Man and woman, the man for the woman, the woman for the man, to come together to be one flesh together. But sometimes I feel like Christians treat people who struggle with homosexuality as if that is a more, that's a worse kind of sin than their own sin. Are, are you with me here? And what we want to do is, you know, you know, if a person struggling with homosexual behavior, we want to encourage that person to be uh, sexually pure. So, for example, if a man is struggling with adultery, I would want to sit down with him and I would, I'd want to say, you know, buddy, God really wants you to be pure. God wants you to be with your wife and your wife only. Uh, when I would come to that man, God would not want me to come to him with a spirit of haughtiness and pride and arrogance, like somehow I'm better than he is. God would want me to go to him with a spirit of humility, a spirit of humility, and he would want me to try to restore that man, not humiliate him. And to help him begin to make good decisions. And the thing is, is that's the way we should be with anybody, whatever their sin is. Whatever kind of sexual sin that they might be involved in or any other kind of sin. That some people we should not brand as being more evil and worse. Because that's exactly what the religious crowd in Jesus' day did. They said the tax collectors, those sinners, they are a more despised group. And what we want to do is we want to resist that tendency of the human heart to somehow despise other people because we feel like their sin is more offensive uh, to God just because it may, be, it may feel offensive to us. Uh, rather than despising other people for their sin, we want to despise our sin. And we want to humble ourselves before God and we want to repent. And we want to create a safe places for people like Matthew where they can connect and they can experience God's healing and they can experience uh, God's mercy and grace. Number three, number three. Third group of people come to Jesus. Uh, some of John's disciples, uh, they come to Jesus and, and, and they, they ask Jesus, hey, you know, we fast. The disciples of John fast. We fast. The Pharisees fast. How come your disciples don't fast? And, and well, I, I'm kind of jumping ahead. When the bridegroom comes, when the, you know, when the bridegroom comes, 
It's a time for feasting, not for fasting. Okay? Now, you may be saying, Gary, what, what are you talking about here? When the bridegroom comes, it's a time for feasting, not for, uh, for fasting. In, in, in Matthew 9, verse 14, some of John's disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but you and your disciples don't fast? Uh, what we need to understand is that some of the disciples of John became disciples of Jesus. And some of the disciples of John rejected Jesus. Okay? They actually started a new sect of Judaism that lasted for a few years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and then eventually died out. But not everybody who was a disciple of John became a disciple of Jesus. Even though John had said, I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase. Not at, there were some disciples of John who became disciples of Jesus. People like Peter, Andrew, uh, James, John were all disciples of John before they became disciples of Jesus. Um, and, uh, but there were some, some of these disciples of John did not follow him. In fact, some of them were actually jealous of Jesus. At one point, you know, a group of them came to John. They said, hey, everybody's going to him and following him instead of coming to us. And they were actually jealous. This group, we don't know exactly who they are. We don't know if this was a group who rejected Jesus forever, or maybe they were just confused and they were trying to find their way. But whatever the situation was, one thing that they're confused about is we're fasting. Uh, the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but your guys are all over there at Matthew's house partying, having a feast. What's that about? What's that about? And when Jesus says to them, he says this, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? Does this sound like an odd question? Maybe not. Maybe it's just me, all right? Uh, they come to Jesus. Jesus answers, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Very important context. Um, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of references to God being the betrothed, to being the bridegroom, to being the husband of the nation of Israel. And when Jesus says, when Jesus makes this statement, uh, and when Jesus says, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? Jesus is making a very powerful statement about himself. What Jesus is saying, he's, he, he's saying, hey, hey, guys, I am the messianic king. I am the bridegroom of the nation of Israel. I am the betrothed. I am the husband of the nation of Israel. And uh, what they would do in the ancient world, whenever there was a feast uh, around a wedding, that feast would last about seven days. It would last about seven days. And what Jesus is saying is, this is not a time for fasting. This is a time uh, for feasting. The fasting of first century Judaism was um, failed to recognize that Jesus was, is the bridegroom of Israel. So when the Pharisees fasted, when these disciples of John continued to fast, in a sense, what they were doing is they were failing to either recognize or they were refusing to acknowledge that Jesus was the bridegroom. When they continued in this practice of fasting in that moment, in his presence, in a sense they were saying, we don't accept you as the bridegroom. 
And what Jesus says to them is, is it's kind of a curious statement, but he goes on to say to them, he says this. Uh, he, he says, um, he, he changes his metaphors. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. And basically what Jesus is saying is he's saying that your practice of first century Judaism is like a worn out cloth. What he's saying is, is that I didn't come to patch up what's wrong in bad religion. Jesus didn't come to patch up what's wrong with bad religion. Uh, in, instead, he goes on and he uses a slightly different metaphor. He says, people do not put new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out. The wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and, and both are preserved. Um, what Jesus was doing here is he's, he, he's basically saying that I didn't come uh, to, to patch, patch up what's wrong with bad religion. We need to see, uh, what Jesus is saying is that we don't need a patch job on bad religion. We need Jesus. We need to see that he is the bridegroom of Israel, the messianic king spoken of in the Old Testament. We need to see that new wineskins, we need new wineskins for the new wine, the new work of the messianic king. We need new vessels, new hearts, for the new righteousness we have in Christ. Um, as you read through the book of Matthew, and, and again, it's like I feel like my mind's trying to wrap around this. And I feel like I'm having a hard time getting this said, so I'm just going to ask you to be patient with me. When you're reading through the book of Matthew, something should be happening for you. Uh, a, a portrait should be emerging in your mind as you read through the book of Matthew. That as you're reading through Matthew you should be getting this, this, this picture of Jesus, and it looks something like this. That Jesus is, if we go back to, 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 to Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is the true seed of Abraham and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In the genealogy of Jesus, what, 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 what Matthew does is he traces uh, the, the seed of Abraham uh, all the way to Jesus. And what, 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 what Matthew's trying to help us to see, that Jesus is the true seed of Abraham and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. What, what Matthew is saying is that Jesus is the one that God spoke of in the Old Testament when God spoke to Abraham and said, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Jesus is the true seed of Abraham through whom all nations are blessed. That Jesus is the true son of David. That he is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That what, what, what God told David is he said, one day you will have a son who will reign from your throne and he will reign forever and ever. Jesus is the true son of David who will reign from the throne of David forever and ever. As you read through the book of Matthew, you should be seeing that Jesus is the one who was uh, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but who was born of a virgin. That what you should see is that Jesus is Emmanuel, meaning he is God with us. That what you're supposed to see as you're reading through Matthew is you're supposed to see that he is Jesus, which means the Lord who saves. He is the Lord who saves. And as you read through and continue to read, you should be seeing that, that Jesus is the one who teaches with authority and not like the teachers of the law. That we should see that he is the one who has authority over the natural world when he stills the storm. He is the one who has authority over the supernatural world when he uh, releases the demonized. That he is the one who has authority to forgive sin. He is 
And folks, when he says, I, uh, when, when he talks about here in the first part of Matthew 9, he says uh, to the, he, he says to the, the, uh, the, the teachers of the law, um, he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. When Jesus makes that statement, that he is the Son of Man, what Jesus is saying is he's making a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and he is saying that he is the Son of Man who has been given authority, glory, and sovereign power. He is the one who desires compassion, not sacrifice. He is the one who calls and saves sinners. He is the one with power and authority over disabilities, disease, and death. And in Matthew chapter 9, what we see is that humanity's greatest need is for a Savior, not a healer. That Jesus came to call sinners, not the righteous. The bridegroom of Israel has come. It's time for feasting, not for fasting. We don't need a backpass job on bad religion. What we need is we need Jesus. And we need new wineskins, new vessels, new hearts for the new wine and the new work of the Messianic King. Let's pray. God, my prayer today is that you would help us to get a better understanding of who Jesus is. I pray, God, that you would help us to to see that Jesus was not just a a good man. He was not just a a religious teacher. He was not just a prophet. Uh, But he is actually uh, uh, the the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, that he is uh, true God and true man that he is the one who has authority to forgive sin. He has authority over the natural world and the supernatural world. And my prayer, God, is that we'll get a better sense of who Jesus is and that we would worship him as he deserves. And I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.